This is Jocko Podcast number 126 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And tonight also joining us is Mr. David Burke. Good evening, Dave. Good evening. On September 27th, 1950, approximately 60 American prisoners who had been confined in prison were taken into the prison yard in groups of 14 with their hands wired together. These men were forced to sit hunched in hastily dug ditches and then were shot by North Korean troops at point blank range with American M1 rifles using armor piercing ammunition. Of the two seriously wounded survivors, only one lived to recount the gruesome details. Unnumbered civilians estimated at between 5,000 and 7,000 as well as soldiers of the Republic of Korea were also slaughtered between September 23rd and September 27th, 1950. Sergeant Kerry H. Wynell, formerly with the 23rd Infantry Regiment, 2nd Division, Korea, was the sole survivor of the infamous Taejon Massacre. And he testified at a congressional hearing. And I'm going to read some of that transcript. Here's Sergeant Wynell. Toward the last, they was in a hurry to leave Taejon to evacuate Taejon, so they took approximately the last three groups pretty close together. I witnessed the group right in front of me shot. After they was shot, we was taken to the ditch and sat down in the ditch and shot. And then Senator Potter asks, what happened to you when you were shot? And Sergeant Wynell replies, I leaned over against the next man pretending I was done for. In firing, they hit my hand. Senator Potter, how were you? Sitting in the ditch? Sergeant Wynell, they was aiming at my head. I have a scar on my neck, one on my collarbone, and another in my hand. They hit me three times. And you played dead? Yes, sir. After they thought everyone was dead, they started burying us. I came pretty close to getting panicky about that time, but somehow or another, I figured as long as I had some breath, there was hope. In other words, you were buried alive? That is right, sir. I might add, in that whole group that I was with, there was not a man that begged for mercy, and there was not a man that cracked under the ordeal. Sergeant, how long were you buried alive? That is hard to say, sir. As I say, I was shot around 5 o'clock in the morning, and I stayed in the ditch until that evening, until what time it was dark. I would say approximately 8 hours, 7 or 8 hours. Now that is from a report on Korean War atrocities written by the Subcommittee on Korean War Investigations. And I want to repeat one line again from Sergeant Wynell. 
He says, in that whole group that I was with, there was not a man that begged for mercy and there was not a man that cracked under the ordeal. So think about that. Think about the will and the discipline of those men to be facing certain death at the hands of a murderous enemy, but to face death with solemn silence and show no signs of breaking. And I've said before that war brings out the worst in people, but it also brings out the best. And that is but one of thousands upon thousands of examples of the dedication of our military fighting men. And I'm going to read you another example from the same war around the same time. But this one is an award citation. And it reads, the President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to First Lieutenant Armour Thomas Wilford Fife, United States Army, for gallantry in action as a member of Company B, 72nd Tank Battalion, 2nd Infantry Division in action against an armed enemy on 19 September 1950 in the vicinity of Yongsang, Korea. On that date, Lieutenant Fife was in command of a platoon of tanks charged with the support of infantry elements in the defense of Yongsang perimeter. The enemy attacked his position with superior numbers and a fanatic determination to penetrate through to the division main supply route. The enemy attack was successful in routing the friendly elements and inflicting casualties to the extent that the organization and combat effectiveness of the positions was completely disrupted. Realizing the seriousness of the situation, Lieutenant Fife disregarded the heavy enemy fire and dismounted from the protective armor of his tank to reorganize the foot elements. After reorganization, He remained on the ground and successfully reestablished the positions by controlling both the foot elements and his tanks by means of radio communications. During this same date, while engaged in a friendly attack against the enemy, Lieutenant Fife again displayed gallantry by refusing evacuation after being wounded. The leadership, loyalty, and gallant actions demonstrated that day by Lieutenant Fife are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service. So, Lieutenant Fife was under attack from devastating enemy fire, but he did not remain in the protection of his tank. In fact, he did the opposite. He exited his tank to organize troops and stop the enemy attack. He risked his life to lead his men. And he would continue to lead even after wounded. Now, Korea was not the first war for Lieutenant Tom Fife, nor would it be his last. Lieutenant Fife had actually already fought in World War II. He fought in Korea. And he fought in Vietnam. He also received three Purple Hearts for each of the three times he was wounded, once in each war. And in addition to the Silver Star from Korea, he also received another Silver Star for his service in Vietnam. 
and a Legion of Merit and a Distinguished Flying Cross and survived all that and served our great nation for 25 years. And I will say that it is my absolute honor to have retired Colonel Thomas Fife on the podcast today. Sir, thank you for coming on. (laughs) It's nice to be here, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I listened to that story. It brought back tears. Quite frankly, uh, I'm upset just because of the memory of that. It was a horrible experience, but one that had to get done. And I still remember uh, getting out of that tank and wondering why in the hell I was doing it. But uh, something had to be done. When you see thousands of people coming at you and you have nothing but your weapons you, and the guys needed some help. They just, they were willing to, I guess, run. I don't know that was what they were, they needed leadership. And that's the only thing I could think of, to get out and try to be there with them. And thank God we turned them around. Yeah. And we were able to stop the enemy. You can't understand what it's like to be there and having thousands of people come rushing at you. And the best you can do is shoot your tank guns and your machine guns. And they just kept coming. They just kept coming. I mean, talk about discipline. Those guys were disciplined too. And uh, we had to get our guys together, and we did. And it was, I think I was lucky. I was damn lucky. By the way, my wounds weren't that serious. I got shot in the ass, and it closed up. The uh, wound closed up, and so it stopped bleeding. And for all practical purposes, I was as good as new for a while. (laughs) So, I mean, it wasn't that serious a wound. I mean, I I'd hoped to be evacuated to Japan, but didn't work. <laughs> so, so your million dollar wound turned out to be like a 50 cent wound. At least. <laughs> it was, it was a, you know, you, when you, when I got wounded, I felt the blood rush into my pants and then it stopped. So why not keep going? You know? <laughs> so as far as I was concerned, the wound was dead over, and when I finally got to the MASH hospital, the doctor said, nothing we can do for you. It's going to work its way out or stay there forever. <laughs> it eventually worked its way out, which is how I ended up being evacuated when we were up in North Korea and got to a hospital ship, Navy hospital ship, and they took the piece of metal out of my butt and uh, then MacArthur just said General MacArthur had said we're going to be home by, thanks, by Christmas mm-hmm. 
So my objective was get off that hospital ship as fast as I could and get back to my unit. <laughs> and of course the Chinese hit. Yeah. And so I was now trying to get back to my unit and the army was totally screwed up. We didn't know where, who was where. So I ended up flying to Pyongyang, landing in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, and the airfield was totally surrounded by fire. We were destroying all of our equipment and whatever else. We landed our plane, the plane landed, and I had to go find my unit. And nobody knew where it was. So I got on the road and started hitchhiking. <laughs> and I, a guy came along, happened to be a classmate of mine who was in Signal Corps. He stopped, saw me, picked me up, took me back to where he was, which was Corps headquarters. And they didn't know where in hell my outfit was. So finally, they took me back to the MASH hospital, another MASH hospital. And the MASH hospital knew where my unit was. And they took me back to my unit in an ambulance. Now, I wasn't wounded. It was just a way to convey, get me back to my unit. I, I still remember those days. A terrible experience, but fun. <laughs> it's hard for people to understand that. And I have that discussion with people a lot when you're saying, hey, this was a, the worst time of my life and also the best time yeah. of my life at the same time. Let's, uh, let's, I mean, we'll, let's get into Korea, but let's talk a little bit about sort of where you came from, how you grew up, um, starting with, uh, I guess, Sioux City, Iowa. That's right. <laughs> well, I was a, a kid growing up uh, in the middle of the United States. Uh, I was reminded on the way over here, I was talking, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, I was 16, almost 16 years old, and I was in a movie theater. And they stopped the movie, and they announced that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. I didn't know where Pearl Harbor was. Now, I knew where the Hawaiian Islands were, but I didn't know Pearl Harbor was in the Hawaiian Islands. When you're in Iowa, the, there's no oceans. No, <laughs> nobody, no, nobody, you don't, you don't think about oceans. And so here we were uh, in this movie, and I was almost 16, as I said, and I said, well, hell, the war will be over before I ever get called in. Well, that turned out to be wrong. So, uh, as I said, I was going through high school. My whole objective while I was in high school was going to become a chemical engineer and go to Cornell University. Why? Because my best friend's oldest brother-in-law was, was a chemical engineer working in Sumatra. Well, when you're growing up in Iowa, Sumatra <laughs> sounds like a pretty good thing to be doing. So that's why I wanted to be a chemical engineer, and I was going to go to Cornell because he went to Cornell. 
And that was going to be what I was going to do. Well, the war happened. And I suddenly became 18, and you get drafted. It's hard for people to realize today, every place you go, people were in uniform. There weren't people walking around in civilian clothes. The only people who were in civilian clothes were those who couldn't qualify because of physical disabilities. So everybody was in uniform, no matter where you were. So I got drafted, and fortunately, my dad was smart enough to send me off to Iowa State before I was 18, and I got two quarters in as an engineer. So the Army, in its great wisdom, decided to make me a combat engineer, which was a hell of a lot better than being an infantryman as far as I was concerned. So I... Uh, went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Now, when you're from Sioux City, Iowa, Columbia, South Carolina is eons away. It took us five days on a damn train to get there. <laughs> so we got there, and all of us soldiers get off the train, and the first sergeant got us all lined up there. And... Uh, He's calling roll, and he says, Fifi, and I yelled, Fife. And from that moment on, I was Fifi in this organization. <laughs> so anyway, the, that was in March of 1944, 44. And so we went through basic training learned to be a combat engineer. And I became a demolition specialist. Now, it's hard for people to realize, here's a kid who grows up in Sioux City, Iowa, and suddenly is handling explosives. I had no more idea of doing that in the man in the moon. <laughs> so, in the training, we were primarily learning to build bridges and take care of roads. That was our primary mission. But we also were taught to be infantrymen. Combat engineers uh, have a secondary responsibility. And so we uh, ended up, uh, fortunately, going to Europe. When we were in training, we had no idea which direction we were going to go, but in retrospect, I've always felt that we were lucky to go to Europe rather than to the southeast. However, uh, when I got to uh, Europe, and it was colder than hell. I wasn't so sure that was a really great decision, but <laughs> it worked out all right. But uh, but our primary uh, role was to go to. Europe and become a take care of the roads and uh, all the things that engineers do. And so you showed up there. Is were you right around the the Battle of Bulge time frame? Yes, I mean the Battle of the Bulge was, as I remember, right around Christmas time of 1944. 
44, yeah. And we got to the continent right at that time. But our unit went to Luxembourg. Uh, it primarily was helping General Patton's army turn, make a 90 degree turn and go north to help stop the Germans. And so the roads had to be taken care of and, and that's what our unit was doing. So we prim during the, the actual combat at Bastogne, we were working on roads and keeping the roads open for the uh, Patton's army to get up there. Uh, our unit eventually uh, eliminated the Germans, the last Germans from Luxembourg in a little town called Vianden, which is on the Our River, right across from the Siegfried border, a uh, Siegfried line. And uh, so the 1255th Engineer Combat Battalion turned into an infantry outfit for a brief period of time. February 12th, 1945, we got rid of all the Germans, the last Germans in the country of Luxembourg. The combat engineers, we always, I always have to, we'll always want to give them their due because they continue to keep roads open. And when, when, when we were fighting in Ramadi, it was the combat engineers primarily that they had the duty of, of mine clearance. And it was a brutal and, da I mean, obviously a highly dangerous job for them to be out there clearing those mines and keeping those roads open. That's a, that's a hell of a job. Well, <laughs> as a demolition specialist, one of my other one of my jobs was mine clearance. And I was operating a minesweeper on this road down into the valley at Vianden. And behind me were the were two tanks from the, the cavalry unit. And the Germans could see the tanks. I guess they could see us too, but they, they sure the hell were looking at the tanks and shooting at the tanks and a lot of their machine gun fire would ricochet off the tanks and that's how I got hit with, with ricochet off the damn tank got into my leg and arm but superficially I mean all I did was go back to the aid station get bandaged up and back into my unit it wasn't, wasn't any uh hospitalization and all that kind of stuff. Another 50 cent wound for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had a lot of those. <laughs> so how long were you, so did you stay over over in uh, Europe until the war ended? No, actually, actually in March, uh, the unit got orders for me to return to the United States because I had appointments in the United States Military Academy. Okay. And so, my very first airplane ride was from Liège, Belgium to Paris. And I was, I remember going into this office in Paris and I was dressed in my battle gear, so to speak. And they looked at me and they said, and I had a steel, I was still wearing my steel helmet. And, the, and the, I can still remember this, this sergeant saying, 
we got to take care of this guy. we got to dress him up. <laughs> and so they put me in all brand new clothes. Two days later, I was on an airplane flying back to the United States. 27 hours later, and five stops en route, we ended up in Washington, D.C. So, and so I ended up, my first time to ever visit the Pentagon, here's this 19-year-old PFC, dressed in brand new clothes, walking into the Pentagon. And I can tell you, I wasn't sure what the hell I was doing. <laughs> but I finally got orders to go to Cornell University. Cornell University, what for? To get re-academic, uh, get reoriented towards academics. Okay. So wait, so you had orders to West Point, but they were gonna send you to Cornell for a little while to prepare for it? Well, no, I had, a, an appointment to the academy. Okay. And the, if you had an appointment to the academy, in fact, this is still true today. If you have an appointment to the academy, they take you out of combat and bring you back someplace safe. And uh, they brought us back. There was about 300 of us at Cornell, all uh, from different parts of the service. Whether be Army, Air Force, was back those days it was U.S. Army Air Corps, and, uh, and we were there uh, for, for them to get re-acclimated to academia. To turn your brain back on. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and so that was... At this point, did you know, did you know you wanted to stay in the army as a career had you enjoyed your time in Europe and you said you know what I think I'm gonna do think I'm gonna go the distance or no <laughs> I had no I had no idea it wasn't until after well very quickly that my appointment to the Academy was an alternate appointment and as the principal if he qualifies, the alternate doesn't get to go. And my principal qualified. So now what do they do with me? And the Army in this great infinite wisdom decided to send me to Officer Candidate School. So they sent me down to Fort Belvoir to the Engineer Officer Candidate School. The Army knew they were going to need a lot of second lieutenants over in the Southeast Asia. And so anyway, in the middle of Officer Candidate School, the war in Japan ended. Now what? Well, they stopped Officer Candidate's, they st slowed it down, I guess is the right word. And, but I continued on and graduated uh, end the end of January of 1945. And here I was now a sec lieutenant. So you got your commission. Yeah. And I had a, and, I, and now I also had a principal appointment to the military academy. So, what do they do? So they kept me at Fort Belvoir training recruits. And then in July, they discharged me from the Army to enter the military academy as a cadet in July 1st, 1946. It was somewhere in there that I started to like 
the Army. Got it. But I knew if I wanted to be an engineer, I damn well had to get a college education. Well, we're better to go than to a place that's supposed to train you to be an Army engineer, which is, in this case, West Point. So I, could, I went on to West Point and spent four years there, obviously, and graduated in 1950. So you got commissioned? They took your commission away for four years. You got, and then they gave it back to you at the end of four yeah. years. The only rank I've ever had was in the army was twice was second lieutenant. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, and West Point at this point is being run by just all World War II veterans. I'm, I'm sure. Yes, in fact, uh, uh, our the uh, our tactical officers were all. Uh, lieutenant colonels who had been battalion commanders of some sort in World War II in Europe or uh, in the Air Force. In fact, tactical, tactical officer of my company, the first two years was an artilleryman, and the second two years was a, a, a Air Force, well, it was U.S. Army Air Corps, became Air Force, uh, lieutenant colonel. So. And then the, the superintendent was uh, Maxwell Taylor, and uh, the commandant was a guy named Paul D. Harkins, who was Colonel Harkins. He was uh, General Patton's uh, hatchet man. And, uh, and the deputy commandant was a guy named John K. Waters, who was uh, General Patton's son-in-law. So, uh, so they were all World War II veterans, yes. And and as were you at the time, that had to be, was that fairly unique or was there a lot of other guys that were prior enlisted that were coming to West Point? Um, uh, of, of my class who started, about 1,100 of us, uh, I would guess several hundred were veterans of some sort. Uh, Navy, uh, Army, Army Air Corps, uh, yes. I would say about two or th 200, 200 to 300. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Now, when you're going through West Point, the war ends. Are you is is war on the horizon for you, or did you guys have an attitude kind of like, well, you know, we're going to go and be peacetime Army officers for the next however many years? Or did you see trouble brewing? No, saw no trouble brewing. I mean, there was, I don't think anybody really foresaw what was going to happen in Korea. Uh, in fact, the, the only thing that was trouble, if you would, was the Berlin Airlift was, happened while we were cadets. And so we saw that kind of thing, but I guess in our, maybe in our naivety, we figured that nobody was going to pull the plug and really have the Russians attack or vice versa. Were we going to do anything? Uh, so, so when you graduate, what's your next move? What was your next move after you graduated? Well, it wasn't my move. North Korea invaded South Korea, <laughs> and General <laughs> President, <laughs> President Truman decided. Uh, 
to send the U.S. troops to Korea. Now, one of the things when you uh, when you graduate uh, by order of rank, you're allowed to choose your branch and then where you want to go. Well, <clears throat> my experience with being in front of that tank and getting uh, shrapnel, I decided I didn't want to be out in front of the tank, I wanted to be in the tank. <laughs> so I chose, not, I, I chose not to be an engineers again, I chose to go into armor. So I chose uh, to go to, once again, uh, growing up in Iowa, state of Washington was somewhere, who knows where, so I chose Fort Lewis, Washington as a place I'd want to go visit. So that's my first post was to go to Fort Lewis, Washington to the, it turned out to be the 29th, 29th, no, the 72nd Tank Battalion, which was part of the 2nd Infantry Division. President Truman, while I was on my honeymoon in Canada, decided to send the 2nd Division off to Korea. So in my infinite wisdom, not knowing this was happening, well, I was in Canada and I called home to wish my mother and dad happy 4th of July. Oh, the army had sent a telegram to my parents' house saying for me to get my ass to Fort Lewis as soon as possible. Well, I'm halfway there, up when I'm up into Alberta, Canada. So we drive off to Fort Lewis. And so I arrive at Fort Lewis, uh, middle of July. Now you gotta, I'm now a tank platoon leader. Never been in a tank before. Let me tell you, that's an experience most people don't want to have. I, the only thing I had going, by the way, many years later, my platoon sergeant told me, he said, at that time he was my gunner. He said, we really, really fortunate we had a guy who'd been in combat in World War II not knowing that I didn't know a damn thing about a tank. But the good news is the sergeant was smart enough to teach me how to be a, somewhat of a tanker on the ship on the way over to Korea. So you had no, you, you showed up, you, were, you get done with your, or you cut short your honeymoon, you go straight to Fort Lewis, and then you immediately load up? Yes, my first tank ride was from the port no, from the uh, motor pool at Fort Lewis to the Port of Olympia to put the tank on the ship and goodbye. <laughs> that was my first tank ride. Yeah, that's the, the, the point you made about, you know, not just that your, your sergeant was smart enough to teach you, but equally important is that you were smart enough to listen. And we get, I get <laughs> all kinds of young officers, and I'm sure you saw them through the years, that they're not smart enough to listen to the people that have the experience. And, and that's a huge lesson learned that seems to always need to get learned by people. I, I wish I've told more people 
when asked, what do you do to be successful? I say, listen to your sergeants. Listen to your sergeants. Ask them. Don't be afraid to ask, because they'll tell you. Their job is to make you successful. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are too many people who don't have egos that can allow them to do that. No doubt about yeah. it. They think it's going to make them look bad when it actually makes, yeah. it actually elevates them in the eyes of the sergeant. Yeah. And yeah. Well, so, so your trip overseas, you're <laughs> on the ship, and you show up in Korea. Yes. You can't understand what it's like to be several miles offshore and begin to smell the, what's going to be turned out to be the Port of Busan. But you could smell it before you ever got there. And we knew we were pulling into, and I've never, I've never been to that part of the world in my whole life. And we offloaded ourselves from the troop ship, waited for our tanks to come on the, uh, on the other ships, and we spent uh, four days in, in Pusan waiting for the equipment to come and then offloading it and getting it ready to go into battle. Then um, at, at what point this is this is like the Battle of Pusan. This is the Pusan perimeter. Yeah. And this is the beginning of it right now. This is, for those of you that don't know, this is North Korean troops coming down, 100,000 North Korean troops coming down, and have you guys basically squeezed onto, it's almost a peninsula. It's like a little knot of land that sticks out. It's 35 miles radius from the city of Pusan was the Pusan perimeter. That was the last territory held Everything else was held by the North Koreans. And so when you landed there, that's the situation they were in? Yes. And How did you guys, and how did you and your troops feel about that? I, I don't think we were even cognizant of how serious it was. After we loaded the tanks onto the rail cars, you go to the railhead of Marying, which is, I don't know, 20 miles, 25 miles from Pusan, where we offloaded the tanks. It's where I first went into combat in Korea. Uh, I don't really know that we thought how serious it was. It got, I got the impression Several days later, when the division, assistant division commander called all the officers and senior NCOs together in a, in a place, and he said, men, we live or die here. And I thought to myself, what in the hell did I get myself into here? <laughs> but that's, that's what it was. I mean, we would, I, it, it, you know, in hindsight, I, I've read books about what happened in Korea, and we really didn't understand that. I mean, we were just there doing a job, and uh, I don't think we really understood how perilous the situation was. And at any point while you were there, 
did you understand the peril of the situation or were you just in your particular battles day by day trying to hold the line where you were and didn't was the communications kind of not effective enough to really for you to understand the bigger picture we we had no idea what the bigger picture was i mean honest to god the we were just doing our job and as i said earlier watching these waves of people come across the, the nacton river will never ever go away from my memory i mean people were just coming 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 and all we were doing was shooting 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 and they would just keep coming and uh, we managed to hold the line and they didn't penetrate uh, so no the answer is we didn't understand the perilous of the situation as you're were you holding the line specifically you guys you were holding the line on that river yes and so they were gonna have to try and cross that river to get through the line yes were they swimming were they taking boats what were they doing they were waiting it was it wasn't that Uh, deep okay it it wasn't it it was pretty wide river but it wasn't that deep so they were able to wade across Uh, yeah and they would just keep coming I mean and then how long how long did that particular how long were you under intense waves of attacks like that it was like a was it like 20 days or something of the whole the whole thing i think lasted i don't know 20 days or something yeah, like I was that gonna, i i don't know um, it seemed like uh, forever but i think it was probably over in two or three a couple of weeks uh, uh, my first involvement we got off the tanks off the uh, flat cars and then we rolled into action and my uh, uh, lead tank in front of my very eyes exploded and I will never forget watching the tank commander go sailing out into the ditch to the right and the tank exploding. We rounded a, a curve and unbeknownst to us, there were two Russian tanks manned by Koreans up this draw and they fired at this tank. And we had, a M, my platoon was M4s uh, Sherman tanks and gas uh, engines and they fired and as soon as they fired into the uh, gas tank the whole thing exploded and so my first day in Korea combat one tank destroyed five people which were, at that time the tank had a crew of five were all, four of them were killed in the tank. The tank commander was back in the United States in less than two weeks after we left, or three weeks after we left. And that was my first day in combat in Korea. And uh, so from then on, we got into the, the 
perimeter and spent a couple of weeks there. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, you read earlier my, the citation. It was on September 19th, which is when I was. The only reason I know that was September 19th is because of what you read. <laughs> I didn't remember what exact date, dates it was. Because uh, it wasn't too long after that happened that we had the Inchon landing and everything broke out and we were heading north. So it was a couple of weeks, I don't know. When you were, from a leadership perspective, dealing with losing guys in comparison to when you were in World War II and you weren't necessarily in command of guys, but you're seeing people get wounded, you're seeing people get killed, what was your mindset, what was your perspective um, as a leader when guys were getting wounded, guys were getting killed, and then you had a bunch of, you know, you were saying that your sergeant, you, you, they felt they were lucky to have someone that had been in combat before, and then all of a sudden, I know that they were looking to you, saying, "Okay, well, what do we do now, boss?" Yeah. Well, one thing about uh, in a tank, the, the crews are inside the tank, and as with the radio, you could direct people to do this and do that, uh, and so. I just told them what they should be doing, and they did it. I mean, it, 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 I didn't. Uh, leadership is just telling people what they should do, and they're trained to do it, and they do it. I mean, uh, I, I, I learned. Uh, actually, I learned. I talked to. Growing up in Iowa, leadership, I didn't even know what that was. I learned what leadership was all about at West Point. And, and that's the major difference. When I was in World War II, I was just taking care of myself. I wasn't really too concerned about the other guy, what was going on. We were all just doing our job. That's very different when you're in a combat situation uh, and you got people dependent on each other. And we were all dependent upon each other when we were in a tank platoon. And each of us were trained to do a job and they did it. I mean, one of the, one of the things my platoon didn't exist prior to, I mean, on paper it existed it didn't exist physically so what happened when we were activated the guardhouse was emptied out and we got replacements from Fort Hood, Texas and that was my platoon one of the best soldiers in my platoon was my loader who had spent most of his army career in the guardhouse but you can't believe what a great soldier he was in combat. I mean, because he knew what he was doing, and he was trained to do it, and he did it. I will never forget those young men. I mean, I'm still in uh, email contact with my former gunner, who's now retired as a uh, command sergeant major. But 
he still calls me lieutenant. Because <laughs> he was, he kept my ass out of trouble, I'll tell you that. Right? I mean, he, he taught me more about how to be a platoon leader than anybody will ever t understand. And I guess the leadership training I had at West Point combined with what these young men were teaching me allowed me to become a pretty effective leader throughout not just my military career but my commercial career too. I, I, I'm a strong believer in that leadership works not just in the military but in commercial business. Yeah. You talked about leadership inside a tank. What did you see and, and how did you see what was going on that got you to get out of that tank and tell you that you needed to get out of that vehicle and start directing what was going on on the ground? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, it just did it. I mean, um, I, I knew something had to be done. And my radio communications with these guys on the ground wasn't working. So you gotta, you gotta communicate. And the only way you can communicate, if the radio isn't working, you gotta get your butt off the, off the tank and down there so you can talk to these guys. It, because they weren't trying to talk to me, I was trying to talk to them and get them figured out what the hell they should be doing. So I just did it. I don't know what prompted me to do it. It's a good question because I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I, I talk about that sometimes. I talk about, uh, as a leader, being able to identify what I would call, it's, I just call it the void of leadership. And it's very easy to see when you are used to seeing leadership filling the void. When you see a void of leadership, if you're aware to look for it, it's really easy to see when it's there. And you go, wait a second, someone needs to step in here and take charge. Mm -hmm. And so you had that instinct of, hey, there's a void of leadership here. I, I gotta do something, and here we go. That's right. As <laughs> much as you said to yourself at one point, I'm gonna be inside that tank. <laughs> and then the damn time you needed the tank, you got out of it. <laughs> well, well, in hindsight, you had to do what you had to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And then when, what, once you guys held the line, and you know, it's funny because I use that expression a lot, just talking about you know holding your line with your personal discipline and holding the line with your your subordinates, and we use it metaphorically, and it's incredible to see hear and talk to you about actually literally holding the line. <laughs> when you guys got done holding the line and you had defeated that that onslaught from from the North Koreans, what was the next phase? move out and move north and we the first weeks we moved four or five miles at the most the next couple of weeks we moved hundreds of miles and i remember going as fast as we could north uh, to marry up with the guys who invaded at Incheon. And we just kept going. I mean, I, and 
I don't remember how many opportunities we had to, to really get into combat uh, after we cleared the Pusan perimeter until after we got north of, of Seoul. I mean, we, uh, the invading, I mean, the invasion force up, uh, invaded pretty well cleared that stuff away. And so the city of Seoul was open when we, we went right through it. And uh, we kept going north. Uh, the enemy was retreating pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And we were just going as fast as we could, driving up the roads. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, our unit got almost to the Yellow River, uh, which is about the time they decided to take the take the stuff out of my butt. So I I was sent back to the hospital ship in in the harbor of. So Kim. that's when you got shrapnel. Was when you were up by the by the Yalu River? No, no. That's oh, that had already. That's right. That it, had happened earlier, and yeah, now no, it was coming back. It, 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 the stuff was working. Now, one of the things you, you've got to remember is this piece of metal is in my butt. Now, in a tank, the tank commander sits has a little thing to sit his butt on while he's riding around in the turret. Well, you don't do that when you have a piece of metal working its way out. It is painful, to say the least. And so I couldn't hardly wait for that to happen, but they wouldn't let me go back to the hospital until it got reasonably close to the surface. So when it got close to the surface, they evacuated me. And it was in November of 1950 that they sent me back to the hospital ship. And then you, then I think you, you covered this. But then you got done. The metal comes out, and then you go back again because you're trying to. You're thinking you're gonna get home by Christmas if you can get back to your unit. And I, I got back to the unit eventually, but I didn't get home by Christmas. <laughs> In fact, the uh, by the by the time I got back to the unit, we were the second division had already moved back south, uh, almost to the uh, the Han River, and so. I, I found the unit again somewhere south of, uh, somewhat north of the Han River, but still, uh, we were still in North Korea, but it was the south part of North Korea. Mm -hmm. And were you in, in a situation, did you guys get dug in? Because I know part of the Korean War was like they dug in and it was almost like trench warfare. Did you enter that phase or were you still guys still moving north and south? We did. Uh, as tanks, we never dug in. Now, later on, uh, I think the line stabilized pretty much around the 38th parallel, and there was a lot of digging in uh, d defensive positions as well. Uh, but that was more infantry, not not the tanks. So how did you how how did you end up? What was what was the last phase of you being over there? like and, and what ended up bringing you back to the states uh, well the the line sort of stabilized around the 38th parallel uh, we would go forward and then we'd 
come back. We would go forward, come back. Uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, the, we would uh, do patrolling, I guess is the right word. Patrolling in force. We'd, uh, a, a tank company with an infantry company attached, riding on the tanks, would blast forward uh, to some enemy position. Uh, get into a firefight, take the ground, and then we'd move back again. We were just going back and forth uh, around that so-called, uh, uh, now turned out to be the 38th parallel, but it was generally that sector. Uh, uh, oftentimes, uh, the infantry would uh, get into a lot more heavy firefights than the tanks would. Uh, I spent a lot of time supporting infantry attacks with my tank guns and machine guns covering their advancements forward, but uh, dug in, no, we never, the tanks were never dug in. And then how long did that last for? What? How long did, was your unit deployed over there? And was it the whole unit that, that ended up going home? No, no. At, uh, at a certain point, they decided that people who had been there a year would come home. And we started rotation. And uh, I was one of the um, first ones to rotate out of my unit because I had some decorations and because I'd been there a year and et cetera, I, I had a lot of points. And so uh, I, I was uh, sent back, uh, I guess, uh, I got back to the United States Labor Day of 1951. So I was uh, evacuated. Uh, not, the word evacuated is probably not the right word. I was just sent back home. <laughs> and then, uh, so you get back home. You know, here you are coming home from Korea. It's obviously you at least experienced some pretty intense stuff. And you know, you hear a lot of times especially nowadays with guys coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan with guys struggling to readapt to to life back in America. And I think it's a little bit different because when you came home, you were still in the Army. And yes. I think that's the best thing for veterans. You know, if you're still in, I think the, the veterans that have the hardest time are veterans that get out and all of a sudden the brotherhood that they are used to is gone and the mission that they're used to is gone. But is that is that what you experienced? And you came home, and you you still had your mission of uh, moving forward in the army. Yes, I mean, I had no uh, feeling of not being appreciated. I mean, uh, obviously, I uh, when I came back, I uh, came back. Uh, uh, I had a, a daughter born while I was in Korea. Scared the hell out of me. I mean, I, 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 I still remember this four-month-old child I hold for the first time, first time I've ever held anybody that size. Scared the hell out of me. I mean, I was more scared about that than a lot of the things that happened to me. But anyway, uh, I came back, went to Fort Knox, uh, 
when they sent me now they sent me to school to learn to be a platoon leader <laughs> and and so and then they uh, uh, asked me if I wanted to uh, stay there at Fort Knox and run an officer candidate company and I did and so I spent several years uh, running an officer candidate company and then uh, they decided they didn't need an any more officer candidates uh, at Fort Knox, so they closed that down, and I got to, uh, selected to be an aide yeah. to uh, John Waters. John Waters is, uh, was General Patton's son-in-law, and uh, a wonderful experience, learned a lot uh, from a, a real gentleman. Uh, he was a uh, he ended. He is. He was a brigadier general at that time. Uh, became two stars, but he eventually retired as a four-star general. And uh, but he taught me a lot about being a being an officer. Uh, not so much about leadership, but being an officer and a gentleman. I've, he was an outstanding uh, person. And I, uh, I learned from him. I mean, you, you know, when you when you're working as an aide, uh, you get pretty close to somebody. And uh, I, I always feel very fortunate that I was able to be his aide and learn. Cause I don't know if you know, he's the one in the movie about General Patton sending. Uh, uh, Troops in to rescue somebody in a prisoner of war camp. He was the, the one who was in the prisoner of war camp, and uh, he was wounded very seriously there. But I mean, and uh, it was quite a experience working for him for several years. That was multiple years. Pardon? Multiple years as an aide. I spent uh, two and a half years as his aide. So, and then as he went on to his assignments. I went on to my assignments, and uh, one, of, one of the experiences I had uh, in 1956, I was a company commander of a tank company in Baumholder, Germany. Yeah. And he, at that time, was running the Military Assistance Command in Yugoslavia. And he decided to come up and visit me. Now here's the major general, and he's coming to visit this captain <laughs> in Baumholder, Germany. And it was, <laughs> you can't believe all the <laughs> other stuff that went on. What the hell is the general coming to see you for, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, we, we got through all that, but uh, he, he was a, he didn't come to visit me in Vietnam when he was Pacific commander, but uh, he was a, uh, took care of watching what I was doing. So it was, it was an experience, wonderful experience and a great learning experience to be his aide. Yeah, I was actually an aide too for the, the admiral that was in charge of all the SEALs and it was a very similar situation for me. He was a great guy and I, I learned a ton about about the way the whole big machine worked, yeah. which you have 
no idea when you're a young <laughs> lieutenant you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes and and i definitely got to learn a lot about that and the same thing you just talked about you know i had a, just had a great relationship with him and and uh he took care of me and my guys on many occasions uh which was great and since he was the admiral i, I one time we we were t- he was a surfer and i was organizing a trip for us to go to hawaii and we were going to see some of the seals that were stationed out in Hawaii. And the big thing I had to do is get organized so that when we got picked up at the airport, there were surfboards in the vehicles ready to take us directly to surfing as soon as we showed up. And it's the same. You know, people say, what do you want these surfs? So you, you just get the surfboards ready. That's what you need to do for the boss. <laughs> um, and then, so you did that. You end up, you, you end up, so 56 you're over you're a company commander and what happens in between then and what um, and then uh, I was in a, um, a unit second armor second armor division and at that time uh, in 57 uh, they had something they were going to rotate the fourth division which fourth armor division which I'd been in Fort Hood rotate it to Germany and the second armor division was going to rotate back to uh, Fort Hood. However, I'd only been in country a little over a year and I wasn't eligible to rotate back. So they, uh, uh, in their decision, for those of us who weren't eligible, had to be reassigned and I was reassigned to be at the Secretary of the General Staff at Heidelberg, which is U.S. Army Europe. So now I'm going from being a company commander in Baumholder, Germany, which is the end of the line, all the way to the very senior Army command in Europe. And I'm working now for a four-star general in his general staff organization. And I had... Uh, once again, a chance to go from learning, knowing what's going on down here, to watching what's going on, very senior leadership. And uh, it was a, another opportunity uh, for a year and a half I had that job. And it was just a great experience learning. If you would, the other extreme of where you'd been. That was my, uh, and then, rotated back to the United States in 59 to become a, a math professor at West Point. But I spent four years being a math professor and then went to the Army uh, the Command General Staff College out at Fort Leavenworth. And then the Army decided that they needed to have people counteracting McNamara's whiz kids mm. and so they figured that somebody who had been teaching math probably could not so they sent me to the University of Michigan to get a degree in what turned out to be operations research but the army sent me to be get a degree in automatic data processing which they didn't have such a thing at Michigan, but uh, it, the closest thing to it was 
industrial engineering operations research. So I spent two years there getting a degree. And then I, rather than go back to the Pentagon for a utilization tour, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. So I, and uh, when you say that they were that the army knew that they needed someone to counteract the whiz kids and I've talked about the whiz kids and I've covered them somewhat because the a lot of the people operational on the ground said hey these these statistics that you're coming up with don't take into account the human aspect of these con- of this conflict in Vietnam so was that something that was felt and and understood inside the army at that time i mean clearly it was yes and that's the whole idea was to take somebody who knew something about the army and give him some education to, to these kids so called kids had uh, and statistical analysis and all that stuff and so to be the other part of the yeah. of the of the board, and that was to be my utilization tour. Yeah. So, there's a great example of that, and it's it's the Battle of the Idrang Valley, and um, Colonel Moore talks about it. The fact that the what the Whiz Kids basically said, well, one of the things that they said was, okay, we can kill 170. Uh, Vietnamese soldiers for every one of ours that that they kill so statistically we'll just keep running that problem over and over again and we'll end up winning and I always point out and which which everyone points out and I'm sure you would point it out as well is what they didn't take into account is the, the fact that number one 170 Vietnamese killed to the Vietnamese was not as big of a deal as we thought it would be and we also didn't take into account that one American dead is a lot bigger than the statisticians thought it would be to us. And that's just a, a huge tragedy to go into that situation like that. Well, in, in fact, I've many times thought uh, body count was the dumbest thing we've ever come up with as a measure of success in combat. And I have said that I don't know how many times, and I am still convinced that was the dumbest thing we've done over the time. And I was there participating in it, and it was terrible. Yeah. So let's let's go to Vietnam. So you you volunteered for Vietnam in what, 1966? Yes. Or 65? 66. 66. Okay. And did you, do they automatically say, "Okay, well, you're a lieutenant colonel. That means you're gonna you're gonna take over a squadron or a battalion"? I wish that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, in fact, they, they, they give the army more credit for than this do. <laughs> no, uh, they, along with everybody else, I was a lieutenant colonel. I arrived in country, and I was assigned initially to be the executive officer of the. Uh, Combat Operations Center of MACV, which was the headquarters of all. And the Combat Operations Center was Westmoreland's uh, operations center. And uh, it was run by a Marine Brigadier General, Bill Jones by name. Uh, And uh, was a great man. I mean, and I was his exec. And uh, and we... uh, quote, ran the war, so to speak, uh, 
the word we is a very loose term, <laughs> from the, the COC, and uh, that was uh, headquarters right there in Saigon, and uh, it was a cushy job. I mean, I, I mean, went to work on a regular hourly basis. I used to go in at night once in a while because President Johnson was going to talk to some of the action officers trying to find out what was happening to these patrols that we were sending out. Wow. I mean, that's, a, that's a serious sign of micromanagement, huh? Well, let me tell you, it was micromanagement of the first order, and I saw it, absolutely saw it, and in, in happening more often than I care to remember. And, but... I had one of the evenings, I met one of my former colleagues, uh, Armour, who was commanding the 1st the 4th Cavalry of the 1st Infantry Division. And he told me he was going to rotate home in December. I said, can I get that job? He said, he'd, he'd take me up and introduce me to General Depew, who was the division commander. And I went up and I passed the test. You'd have to know General DePew, and uh, he was a no-nonsense guy. Uh, he he would. People thought I was crazy because General DePew was relieving battalion commanders for incompetence, right and left. And I figured, you know, if you go up and do your job, you're going to be okay. So I went up. <laughs> And uh, General DePew introduced, interviewed me, and General Hollingsworth did. It was the assistant division commander. And Hollingsworth was an old cavalryman. I mean, uh, and he couldn't, the two, the two of them passed on me, said it was okay. And so I got uh, reassigned to, to command of the 1st and 4th Cavalry uh, in December of 1966 which was uh, a plum job. That was, it was not only a, a plum outfit, but it, General DePew used the cavalry squadron like it should be used. Many times later, my successors were all not as lucky as I was. I mean, I was able to fight my unit as a unit. I had uh, uh, three ground troops, one uh, cal I mean, a, a D troop was a helicopter a troop, I had 31 helicopters in it, and I had, and the division commander would assign uh, B company of the tank battalion that was assigned to my unit, and then, since there wasn't any real enemy aircraft, he assigned the, several of the batteries of the anti-aircraft unit to my unit. So I had a, a, a unit that, uh, unparalleled in, in history, because General DePew believed the cavalry was supposed to go find the enemy and keep him there until his infantry could show up. And we did it more often than not. And one of the stories I tell people, uh, I, 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 
I'm self-styled king of the Mission River Plantation, which is, you know, 70 square miles of trees. And historically, there's little communities of workers throughout the, the, this place. And it became, these little towns became havens for the North Korea, for the North, North Vietnamese. And uh, uh, so we took it upon ourselves to evacuate everybody out of the little villages to the perimeter of the plantation. And then took it upon ourselves to destroy the villages because the North, North Vietnamese were coming in at night using these places and shelling our units. So we were destroying all these little hamlets. In fact, I had an engineer company assigned to me, and one of the contests was between the captain, who was the engineer company commander, and myself. I'd be up on my chopper, and he'd be down on the ground, and he was gonna implode these villages. Now, if he imploded them all, he won. If any of the villages, buildings would still be standing, I won. Now, what did we win? A beer. <laughs> and more often than not, I won. He didn't win them. He didn't lose many, but we got, so in the spring of 1967, Ambassador Ellsworth Bunker arrives in Vietnam. The first unit he wants to visit is mine. There is, everybody is, uh, what in the world is, why did he pick this and why is he coming to see you? Well, he gets out there and all the, now he's got a four-star general, three-star general and then division commander, all with him. And then we're out in the middle of nowhere. I'm briefing the ambassador. I get emotional when I say this. He says, Colonel, I got more correspondence on my desk from the French about what in the hell you're doing up here, destroying their village and all the people and causing all this commotion. What are you doing and why are you doing it? And I explained to him that why we were doing it, because they were, these villages were being havens for the north and they were coming in and shelling our, killing our troops. And I've always remembered him saying, Colonel, you just keep doing what you're doing and I'll take care of the French. And I said, God bless you. <laughs> I mean, I still get emotional. With that, that man, that gentleman, understood what the hell was going on. And here we talk about State Department people not knowing what's going on. He knew what was going on. And he told me to keep doing what I was doing. And I did it. <laughs> he, but I will always remember him. This is, I think at the time, I'm not sure of this, he was either the oldest or next oldest ambassador we ever had in, in, in the State Department. But he was out there trapping around in the, in the boonies with me. <laughs> and it was a rare experience. But anyway, it was, it was one of those days, you know, when you really think you counted. Yeah. Indeed. 
and he was to me that's leadership too you know he he was he knew what the hell was going on and he he was able to tell me to keep doing what I was supposed to be doing yeah he was he was a great man so those operations that was that the primary type of operation that you'd be doing is going into areas uh, and basically disrupting what the enemy was up to basically we the mission was search and destroy and what we did was go find try to find the enemy and then destroy him uh, so in that in the Michelin plantation we thought the enemy was not there but we spent uh, there was something called the Iron Triangle north of uh, Saigon is about 30 miles north of uh, Saigon uh, which was our operational area and uh, it, it was traditionally a haven for the the north uh, and or the uh, whoever anyway the guys that were shooting at us and you never know whether they're, they're North Vietnamese or they're uh, conscripted South Vietnamese but they they all look the same to me and uh, they still do I, I, I've never in Korea I couldn't tell the difference between a North Korean and a South Korean I still couldn't never tell the difference between a South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese they, it, it maybe there's a way but I never figured it out and so we just went in and constantly were searching and destroying and if we if we find the enemy in strength our job was to hold him there until General DePue the, could get his uh, infantry into helicopters and bring him in and uh, really defeat the enemy uh, on occasion we got in more of a firefight than we expected to be, but we we generally uh, uh, were pretty good at finding them. And the tanks would roll right through this forest and knock the trees right down, and it was it was no problem at all. Uh, and and I was in my helicopter directing, and you you could see and you tell the tanks where to go, uh, and the tanks and the ACAVs. Uh, which were primarily what the unit was all about. And uh, so we, that was our job. Yeah. So often I read about units that were over there that never or very, very seldom would they see the enemy. They would lose guys to sniper fire. They'd lose guys to mortar fire. They'd lose guys to booby traps. But very seldom would they see the enemy. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's units that are different than that, but it sounded like you were able to find the enemy on a fairly regular basis. Oh, yes. We <laughs> or they found us. I'm, I'm, I, 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 you know, who finds who is, is not sure there's an answer to that. But, yes, we, more often than not, we got in, we had contact. Uh, uh, I had... Uh, more than I would like to admit casualties, uh, which didn't happen because they uh, couldn't find the enemy. I can tell you they could find us, you know, and, and I often remember uh, somebody a long time in my 
go in my career tell me something about reconnaissance by fire. And I, I remember with a tank, you had a lot of machine guns and you could do a lot of reconnaissance by fire. And in the trouble with reconnaissance by fire is you never know whether they see you or not. You just know there's somebody shooting at you. Well, that's good enough. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good enough. You don't need any, know whether he's aiming at you or not. <laughs> uh, um, when you, one of the things that also I, I talk about and I've read a lot about is the Vietnam War being very difficult from a leadership perspective for some leaders more than others, but because you had draftees and and you had draftees, not just draftees that got drafted and, okay, I'm going to go do my duty, but draftees that got drafted that literally did not believe in what was happening and barely even believed in America as a country. How much of that did, did you see, and what, what, was your, what was your leadership approach to those troops? I saw zero of that. I mean, I don't know if I was just absolutely lucky. I know I'm not that naive. I mean, uh, uh, I'll tell you, I, the last few guys I've been talking to and reading about this, and, and there's something that I've noticed a trend. So have you heard the term millennials about the, the new up-and-coming kids? I know what millennials right. are. So people complain about, and, you know, especially from a leadership perspective, people talk to me about, well, you know, I've got my company, and we've got these new these kids checking in. They're millennials. They're different. They're entitled. They don't want to work as hard. And I, I started thinking about in my head, well, basically, you've got a, a workforce that's a little bit different. And this is very similar to the draftees in Vietnam who had a different attitude. And what I've found from good leaders is it didn't matter. It didn't matter that they had draftees. As a matter of fact, uh, General Mukuyama, who I just talked about, when I, talked to, when I asked him about draftees, he said, I didn't even know who was a draftee and who was a lifer. I couldn't tell the difference. And and uh, Colonel Hackworth wrote in his book, he wrote, I loved the draftees because they were straight shooters. They didn't, well, they weren't trying to protect their career. They tell you what they thought, and you could take their input and you could do something good with it. Uh, I've said all along, the soldiers I served with in three different wars got better. And they were all draftees. I mean, I didn't ever serve with an all-volunteer outfit. They were all, no matter where I was, they were draftees. And they all did their job. I mean, I, I've never see, had anybody tell me uh, it wasn't their job, it wasn't this, wasn't what they wanted to do. Or it was, they just did it. And I don't know this leadership or I don't, it was just, it was just the way it was. And uh, they were all proud to be in our outfit. I mean, uh, now, I'm sure other people later on, I mean, I've heard of people later on in, uh, in Vietnam having real problems with drugs and all that kind of, we didn't have any of that. But no. Fortunately, I left in 1967, so I'm not sure how things got worse, uh, perhaps, but uh, I think uh, drugs are an issue, period, uh, but I don't know 
I didn't have any of that kind of a problem. And as I said earlier, I'm not naive. I, I believe in uh, knowing exactly what's going on. The way you find out is walk around and talk to people. You don't sit in your tent or in your helicopter. You've got to go down and talk to the guy on the ground and find out what the hell's going on. And that's, you know, there's a fellow who wrote a book. His name was Peters. This is many years later. And he, he, he wrote the book. It's called Management by Walking Around. And there's a guy who made a fortune just doing what I used to do. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's scary. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's true. That's what leadership is all about, is find out what's going on. And then using some common sense to uh, tell people this is what you're supposed to do or give them some guidance. But I mean, people who used to tell me well, you know how to do things because you can order people to do things. And I'm, I'm saying, let me tell you something. <laughs> Ordering a guy to get out of a tank to fix the track when somebody's shooting at you is not anybody willing to <laughs> just do it. I mean, he's going to do it because he knows if you don't get the track fixed, we're going to get our ass killed. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get going. He's going to do it because that's his job. And uh, if that... That may be leadership, but I'll tell you, it's discipline that comes from people being trained right and taught right and treated right. You don't, if you don't treat people right, they deserve to treat you wrong. And I'm a, a great believer in treating people the right way. Well, I, I'm just from hearing you talk about treating people the right way and listening to people, you, you're you know, you say when when I told people to do stuff, they did it. Well, yeah, that's because you treated them well. You listened to them. You you had those relationships with your with your troops, and that's what makes people, like you said, when you got to have somebody that's gonna gonna go out and fix a track under fire. Well, that's somebody that's they're not gonna do that just because you order them to do it. You better have some some relationships. You better have treated them well, and they must understand what the why on the mission is to like, hey, why this is important. So when you when you look back at World War II, Korea, Vietnam, I, I was from a tactical perspective, actually maneuvering troops. Is there any big lessons that you would think back of that you say, this is something that I did consistently or this is something that I would never do because I knew it would cause problems? Hmm. I can't think of anything. Uh I'll go back to what I said earlier. I've always believed, and maybe this is from growing up in Iowa, I don't know, just treat people like you'd like to be treated yourself. And it worked out. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, I, I told you about my first sergeant calling me Fifi, <laughs> which pissed me off, quite frankly. But, uh, because he was a guy who didn't treat people like people like to be treated. And I've always was amazed how much I exulted in the fact when he got busted. I mean, uh, we, we were in England on the way over to the continent and uh, he, he got 
busted for I don't know what reason, but he got busted back to I mean, being a private. That's a big jump from first sergeant down to being a private. And I was happy because I didn't think this guy was, he, he's also the guy, when I took the test to see whether I could be smart enough to go to the military academy, he said, what the hell are you taking a test for like that for? You're not smart enough to go to the West Point. And I always would like to be able to say to this guy, if I ever saw him again, I'm sure he's dead by now, I told you so. <laughs> but, you know, uh, if you don't treat people like they, they should be treated, they, you deserve to be treated the, the opposite way. And uh, I just have always practiced, or tried to practice that anyway. And uh, so far it's been relatively successful. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge underpinning of leadership from, from everything I've seen, everything I've ever read, every person I've ever talked to. If you care about your people, you care about and you want to treat them well as human beings, that's the underpinning that really makes leadership work. And it's a lot of times, and you mentioned this earlier, a lot of times from the civilian side, they think, well, in the military, you can just order people to do things and they'll just do it because you're the boss. And that's not true. And it's actually, when I got out of the military and I started working in the civilian sector, I thought to myself, well, if, well, if you didn't want, if, if, if you want somebody to do something and they don't do it, you can just fire them. But that's not true either because guess what? You'll run out of people really quick. <laughs> and so what you have to do is you have to lead. Right. That's what you yeah, have to do. Right, right. And one of those, the most core underpinnings of leadership is really caring about the people that work for you. And I think the more you care about them, and, and I know for me, like I, I, I cared more about my guys than I did about myself. I wanted to make sure that they were okay and that things were going to go well for them. And that was always my priority, my, my real priority. And, and I, I suppose someone that was uh, very jaded might think, well, then, you know, you're, you're going to get passed over. You're not, things are going to work out good for you because you're more worried about your troops. And the opposite's actually true. That's and, right. And my career was, was, was beautiful. And I, all I ever tried to do was take care of the people that worked for me. Because that's the way you get to be successful. You know, hiring people or working with people, you know, in the civilian sector, you hire people. In the military, we, whoever arrived, was that, that you, was it. You get people. <laughs> but I've always said, your job is to make the boss successful. And vice versa, the boss's job is to make them successful. And if you work that, it works out for both of you. And to me, leadership, you know, we talk about it, but it's easy if you follow a few basic principles. It, you don't have to have a, all the stuff that goes. I mean, people write books on leadership. You've probably written books on leadership yourself. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> but the fact of the matter, there's some basics, and you just expand on it. You don't. It isn't that magic if you just follow a few basic principles. One of the things we, we talk about in the book, actually, is simple, not easy. 
Yeah, because it is. There's, and we say that in in our book as well. Is we're not we didn't invent any of this. This is stuff that's been around, and there's no eureka moments. And we're not claiming to have anything startlingly new. This is fundamental stuff that if you think about it, it, some of it might be stuff you already do as a leader. Some of it be stuff that you know you should do as a leader. And just making it clear for people to understand is is probably the the only real benefit of the book itself. It's like, okay, this is good stuff. Yeah. But nothing, no rocket science there. I didn't need to be a whiz kid to, to write that book, I can promise <laughs> you. <laughs> so did you, you mentioned uh, earlier when we were not recording that you actually ended up going back to Vietnam as, yes. and were you a civilian at that time? Oh yes, yes. Uh, well, my wife and I like to travel. So we've traveled most of the places in the world by now. And she wanted to go back and see where I'd been in Vietnam. And uh, that's, wasn't too sure about that, but anyway, we had this opportunity, and uh, so we went back, uh, and I went to Hanoi, which was an experience. And go to the Hanoi Hilton and seeing how they've turned that into a propaganda place, and I still remember seeing this picture on the wall of. Uh, Senator McCain and uh, a couple other guys, I can't remember the names. Another one was what, a high school classmate of mine, uh, Bud Day by name, who was an Air Force uh, uh, retired colonel, <laughs> got the Medal of Honor. But anyway, and they were showing them in these white pants and white overshirt as if they were on a, on a barbecue, you know. It, it, you, you know everything you've heard about this place was just, and they showed you some of the cages that they had people in. We actually have had two guests on the podcast that were in the Hanoi Hilton, and oh. one of them went back and was talking us through that same propaganda Went went back to the Hanoi Hilton yeah. as a civilian, and just the uh, the feeling he had was I mean, was pretty strong. I can't I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, uh, but you know, when I was there, I was just seeing it from the propaganda and what they were, because it's it's a big uh, tourist attraction apparently for the. The, the Vietnamese and uh, so we obviously saw it and uh, knew what it was and and for what it was uh, and I, I hear all kinds of stories about the people that were there you know but uh, and then we went from there to Da Nang and then down to uh, Saigon and uh, I'd hired a, a a, a car and a guide to take us up back up to my old operational area and drove through the Michelin rubber plantation uh, which was sort of a fun experience to see now it's no longer Michelin it's a state owned uh, uh, 
they took it over, obviously, from the French, but uh, it looks exactly the same. I mean, trees are lined up, rubber trees, just rubber trees, rubber trees. And uh, the people are out there working the trees. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, which is, this is an aside, you cannot burn a living rubber tree. It won't burn. And I've tried hard. <laughs> I mean, I had flame. I have two flamethrowers in my uh, unit, and we tried hard to burn those trees down on the sides of the road. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyway, the uh, but w we went back up to the old operational area in the same place. I was pretty close to where I got wounded this, uh, when I was in. Vietnam, I was in my helicopter flying over this river, and I was pretty close to where that happened. I could do that because I had the map coordinates of what I, where I'd been wounded before. Otherwise, I guarantee I'd never be able to recognize the place. But, uh, yeah, but I, my old um, base camp, which was because I had helicopters and so forth, I had, had an airfield, is now being turned into a a strip mall, so so we watched all that happening, and uh, but it was a seeing Saigon again was a it's an amazing experience to see what's what they've done. You see all these tall buildings now, but the uh, one officers club that was on the roof of a, one of the hotels. Is still there, exactly the same, and we, my wife and I, went up and had lunch there. <laughs> and in my time before I went out to the unit, I used to go up there, and we'd go up there, and you'd watch out here and see the uh, the sabers, not sabers. Um, uh, what do you what do you call the Rounds that are tracers. Tracers, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> See all the tracers yeah. from being fired up and up or back down, and it was sort of a unique experience because you really weren't fighting a war. I mean, in Saigon, you know, it was it was so different from there when you went out into the field when you were. So, but uh, it was it was fun to go back and uh, see what they've done. And I was impressed with how much the South Vietnamese have really been serious about getting real business and going, and a lot of things happening business-wise. Up north, it's still agrarian. It was still agrarian at the time, very agrarian. You, I mean, very few tall buildings, very few businesses and so forth that you could identify. and. Uh, Maybe it's still the same because that was that was 11 years ago now. But uh, and I don't know what's changed over there. But so the North Vietnamese won the war, so to speak. Uh, I say that with tongue in cheek, actually. But they won the war. But I'm not sure that the South Vietnamese aren't coming back and taking over and running the country. They certainly have the financial strength there. Uh, and I hope that's a way it eventually will 
work out. Well, the way the rest of the world's gone, it's yeah. been freedom and, and democracy and capitalism. That eventually wins the long war. Yeah. And we've seen that worldwide, so hopefully it'll happen for them as well. How did you get wounded your third, your third time getting wounded in Vietnam? Well, I was, I was, one of the missions we had, every evening we'd go into a perimeter, and most of the time we'd be in a perimeter around an artillery unit. So they could fire at night without worrying about getting overrun. And so I put all of our unit into this perimeter from my helicopter flying around. And I noticed a bunch of sandpans evacuating the area that we had. So I thought in my John Wayne failing, I'm gonna go down and shoot some of these guys. So I got the pilot to, I was flying in this case uh, in a uh, two passenger, I mean a one passenger, bubble helicopter and uh, anyway so I had uh, this M40 you know what an M40 is it's, it fires it looks like a shotgun shell okay. and it, so I'm up there and I'm shooting at these guys in the sandpan and I'm doing pretty good uh, missing a lot but eating some but one of them shot back <laughs> and my god it hit me <laughs> in the leg. And so I told the chopper pilot, take me back down to the headquarters, which is where the squadron surgeon was. And he, I will never forget, he, he cut my pants away and there was blood spurring right out, all the way out, at least 18 inches from my leg. I hit something they call a spurter. And he said, this is a captain speaking to me. Colonel, you goddamn dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> you could be dead. <laughs> so anyway, he bandaged me up and the metal's still there, still in my leg. Uh, but uh, were that's- you, and you, were you, uh, you returned to duty though, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I hadn't been in command more than 30 days. I was scared to death. I, uh, I couldn't be evacuated. Hell, I had to finish out my tour. I mean, I mean so. No, well, one I, of my friends named Tim Kennedy is a Green Beret, and he has a TV show coming out called Hard to Kill. I think maybe we need to get you on that show. <laughs> no, 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 somebody might take me up on it. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I, I've been fortunate. I mean, a lot of people got hurt a lot more serious than I've been. Uh, uh, and uh, I've seen some. In fact, uh, I've had too many. It hurt pretty seriously. I had uh, one of my uh, my EXO uh, uh, was in a helicopter and got shot up through the seat of the helicopter, and all the shrapnel, everything went right into his leg, and he was forever. Uh, in bad shape. I mean, I mean. So, I've seen a lot of people get hurt pretty badly. Uh, I've been, I've been fortunate. I mean, 
but I've also had the attitude, I'm not going to get shot and killed. I mean, no, it's worked out, but, <laughs> but uh, going back to, you know, when I got out of that tank to go back in Korea, I had no more idea that I was going to get killed. That, that wasn't going to enter into my mind. I just had something to do. And uh, that may be foolish, but uh, it's just the way it was. Yeah, I think if you're if you were thinking about what could happen, no, you wouldn't do anything. You couldn't do anything. You you're right. Do anything. Yeah. So you, you you're you you wrap up your squadron commander in Vietnam, and again, I, I mean, you were taking. How often would you guys? You're getting in firefights a lot. What was your what was your cas rate of casualties like? How many guys did you lose? How many people were killed while you were there as a squadron commander? How many were killed? Probably ten. Not too many. I mean, uh, when you have A calves, do you know what an A calf is? That's a personnel carrier. Yeah. I mean, A calf stands for Armored Cavalry Assault Vehicle, but it's uh, it's it was the M one thirteens back in those days. I don't know. I don't know what they're called. We today. still used. M113s. We used M113s in Ramadi, the okay. same exact vehicle. Right. So we, we are very familiar with okay. them. We both ridden in the back of them. Yeah. Well, they're pretty well protected, and the tanks are, we had patent tanks, and they're protected. So, uh, yeah, we had casualties uh, because in, in, a, in a cavalry troop, we have infantry right in the ACAVs. So when they get out, they, they get her. But I don't know the statistics. Uh, I I wrote enough letters, but not very. I mean, one's more than enough. But uh, I I don't remember how many I wrote. Uh, but because uh, I did that for everybody who was, who was killed. Uh, but um, I don't, I don't know the statistics. Uh, not too many, not overburdened. I mean, in the sense that uh, I got several people's names on the wall. Uh, I go there every year just just to stand there. Um, but I don't know. Uh, Jocko, I don't know the answer. Understood, sir. When you got home from Vietnam, you know, you talked about coming home from Korea and everyone's in uniform. And, you know, we hear stories of guys coming home from Vietnam and they literally get told, don't wear your uniform around. How different was the reception from World War II, Korea, to Vietnam? <laughs> well... Coming back from, um, from, from Vietnam uh, was a sad experience. Uh, we thought we'd been doing a good job. We thought we were doing the right job. Um, and I came back to the Pentagon and 
I sort of witnessed the experience of the country being up in arms about Vietnam. Um, so, uh, didn't feel too appreciated, I guess is the right word. Uh, and yet, it didn't feel like, I felt like I'd been doing a good job. Uh, it, uh, so I don't, I, I didn't have, I didn't have any bad feelings. Uh, most of those feelings about what was going on came after I got out of, I mean, I retired in, in 69 and things began to go to hell in the country about what we were doing over there. Uh, it, it, well, right after I got out, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my job in, uh, when I got out, I mean, when I came home was in the, and it's at the Secretary of Defense's level. I, I told you earlier, the Army would send me to school to learn to counteract the Wiz kids. Well, guess what? When I came back, the Army sent me to be a Wiz kid. I was, I was sent up to the uh, Secretary of the General Staff, Alan N. Tobin's uh, organization, which was called Systems Analysis, and that's where all the whiz kids were. And they had a representative of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, all four of us, and we were sort of the other end of the teeter-taller. We were, we, were, we were supposed to balance some of these smart young men that were the, quote, whiz kids. And uh, as I tell people, I'm never a whiz or a kid, but I was in that organization. <laughs> and it, it was an experience. To, uh, they wouldn't let me work on anything Army. And I had, because they knew I had to go back to the Army. <laughs> See, that was, and you had, to, you had to be sitting there making decisions that could be a, against the Army, what the Army wanted as opposed to. One of the one of the one of the things I was involved with, because I was involved with the Navy in the Air Force, the Navy wanted to build another nuclear submarine. Well, there's only so many capital ships. That was by law. And so the Navy, I asked why there was. I can't remember now, I think 13 capital ships or whatever the number was. I asked, why is that number 13? It took quite a while for them to figure out the answer. And it really was very simple. It had gone back to the League of Nations, probably in, the 2000, I mean, in 1920 something, when they, they parlayed out to the various World War I winners the number of capital ships, i.e. called battleships, numbers of ships that each country would have. And that's where the, this number came from. Well, I, that was just, uh, now, I learned to ask that question because when I was going to Michigan, one of the, one of the professors said, 
business and statistics class. I want to know what you want to, what you, not what the results are, I want to know what the assumptions are. And you, so I was asking this assumption, why is there X number of capital ships? It was a simple question. I, I, I didn't know I was creating a challenge. I mean, it, and it, it turned out to be exactly what I was saying. It was a strange uh, phenomenon for them to try to figure out why there was that number. I don't know what the world is now, but I can tell you at that point, this was in 1968, I guess, uh, that was a, a, a question that it took a while to answer. By the way, I don't know how many capital ships we have. I don't know what they're called today, but we have a lot more than I think we had back in those days. <laughs> so what made you decide to retire? Well, I had 25 years in the military, and I decided I wanted to think about doing something else. Uh, part of it was I used to listen to people tell me, you just order people to do things and they do it. And I said, that's just a lot of baloney. So I wanted to go and see, cut my, if you would, uh, teeth on uh, trying something in the civilian world. So uh, I sent a bunch of resumes out and I eventually uh, uh, was hired to go down to uh, Texas. And uh, the fellow that hired me was a retired Navy aviator who, by the way, uh, as an aside, was assigned to the first squadron, I think it's called, that flew jets off of aircraft carriers. A guy by the name of Felix Jablonski, who was a wonderful man. And, but if you wanted to know what time it was, he'd tell you how to build a watch. <laughs> this, this, yeah. but, but he, he, uh, he hired me, and our job there was to figure out how to use from LTVs uh, computer resources, how to use these in civilian application. And one of the things we did was we developed for Dallas X's and O's that they used to do on the chalkboard on the computer screen. And this became a way that apparently the Dallas Cowboys would teach the guys how to react to whatever plays it was. So that was using some of this fancy technology that LTV had to build something that was applicable in civilian life. Well, Ling of LTV, Ling, Temko Vought, uh, suddenly got challenged because he was creating a, a huge empire of 
and the antitrust people got after him. And all of a sudden, our organization, the part that I was in, was went from 30 people to four. And I was one of the four. And I don't know, to this day, I still don't know why they kept me, because I'd just been there less than a year. But the guy who tried to hire me into computer sciences previously offered me a job with computer sciences. I mean, even though I had a job, I knew that this place was not a place I long-term going to be. So I went to work for computer sciences, and I spent 15 years there and uh, ended up retiring from there. Uh, is one of the presidents of one of their divisions. And uh, one of the things that my bosses used to say, I was one of the few leaders they had. They had a lot of managers, but uh, I was leading a group and we became very successful, much more so than I ever imagined we could be. It was primarily in sales and marketing. And I had a boss that said, who was from IBM, and strict IBM suit kind of guy. You know, you've heard all the stories about. And he said, <laughs> he said, if I were to go back to my comrades at IBM and tell them that I just hired the former army colonel to be head of sales, they'd all think I was goddamn crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyway. <laughs> I, I had a great career at computer sciences, and uh, as I said, I retired from there. And I'm not a typist. When I was going to high school, if you took typing, you weren't going to college. It was back. So this thing called voicemail appeared to me. And I thought, so. Another fellow and I started a company in the voicemail business in 1984. And uh, it, it was pretty successful. And we sold it in 1998. And uh, I've stopped working since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is awesome. And I know we've kept you here for a couple hours now. And... Uh, um, probably a good place to at least stop for this for this particular session um is there anything else you want to say anything else you want to close out with uh, well i can i can say this that I, I met my wife uh on my first assignment from the pentagon and i my job in the pentagon among other things was to control the number of troops on the ground in vietnam Congress mandated there be 550,000 people on the ground. My job was to be sure that that number was met. So when the Secretary of Defense went to for Congress, he could always say that we have never. So on a quarterly basis, I would go to Hawaii, and then people from Hawaii, Thailand, Korea, Philippines, and Hoy would all meet at the headquarters there up, up on the hill. And we'd go over, because when, when Westmoreland would want to replace an ACAC battalion with an infantry battalion, there's different numbers and everything's different. So we had to 
do all this monitoring and keeping track of how many troops we had. My wife was a school teacher in California and she was over there on a vacation and one of my former colleagues from Vietnam, she knew him and somehow or another we met. For the next two years, we dated cross country. She in California, me in the Pentagon. And I would go every quarter to the Hawaiian Islands for this meeting I'm telling you about. So I'd plan the meeting to be start on Tuesday so I could fly from here to California, spend uh, some time with her, then I'd fly off to, off to Hawaiian Islands, and then on the way back I'd stop and do the same thing, and then I'd be up back here. So anyway, we got married in uh, 19, or after I got out, I retired in 69, and we got married in October of 69. And, uh, the reason I'm still living today is because of her. She keeps me alive, takes care of me. I mean, uh, so she's she's the the principal reason that I can sit here and talk to you. Well, then we'll say thank you to you for coming on, and we'll say thank you to your wife for <laughs> getting you here, because, uh, sir. Once again, this has just been a, an absolute honor to be able to talk to you, to be able to hear the, the stories and the lessons that you learned. And thank you well, from all of us for, for your service, your sacrifice, and well, it's been an honor. Well, you all deserve the honor. I mean, you guys, I, I don't know what, I'd be, what it would be like to be in the service today. Frankly, I mean, I see these guys. My my nephew deployed six times, twice to Iraq, once for the Somali extraction, plus three other times just deploying. You know, and now how he did this, I'll never know. But he never left Camp Pendleton. I mean, he did. He he, he was a um, drill sergeant down at, at, at MCRD, mm-hmm. but he'd commute back to back to Pendleton. I mean, I mean, his wife lived there the whole time, his twenty some odd years in the Marine Corps, all in the same. I I never figured that out. I moved around like, but but my wife would tell you. She, she and I got married after I got out of the We're in our 17th house. <laughs> We've only been married 14, almost 49 years. <laughs> I mean, so everybody said, well, you were in the military. We didn't do this. She was never in the military. We, we moved all the time since then. I mean, you stay in San Diego. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best sir I'll do my best and again yeah to absolutely the troops that are out there today and there's a lot of troops that listen to this guys out there holding the line and, and yeah. doing those deployments over and over again but you know the work that we do today is based on the lessons that we learned from your generations from the three wars that you fought and what you passed on to us and it was an honor for us to continue to carry the flag so Thank you, sir. Keep, care, keep carrying it, yes, sir.
Yes, sir. And Colonel Tom Fife has departed. And obviously it is a honor to uh, get to talk to him. And thanks for setting that up, Dave. Yeah, man, that was awesome. Much appreciated three-war veteran. I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. That's just unbelievably awesome to sit and listen to. And, and you know what? Thanks, Dave, for setting that up. And also thanks to everyone that that supports this podcast so that we have the opportunity to bring people on like Colonel Tom Fife and be able to share those lessons learned, which there was a ton in there. Mm-hmm. So thank you all for supporting. And Echo, if people do want to support... Sure. Can you maybe fill us in on how to do that? Sure. Let me start with our company. Oh. Origin. That's the company. OriginMain.com is the website. Um, there you can get Jocko has supplements. You can get Jocko supplements, Jocko Super Krill Oil for your joints. <laughs> <laughs> Joint Warfare for your joints. Don't run out, by the way, Dave Burke. You're, I don't know if you've ever been on the, in the situation of running out of Super Krill when you depend on Super Krill. It's a bad situation. And if you ever want to reduce the risk of running out, do the subscription thing. That's what I do. Kind of. Subscription. Subscription, yeah. You just get your allotted amount per month or however often you need it. Also, pre-mission supplement. It's called discipline. Hold on, Dave. You're firing up on discipline. You you said you said to me, and I quote, I live on discipline. Yeah. <laughs> it has become a daily part of my life for sure. You you've got it in the brain. Yep. You use it before you work. Yep. You're studying, you're working, you're prepping. That's your go to. The the stuff is awesome. I use it probably more than I should. Yeah. It's <laughs> legit. I don't know if there's a some kind of a you know, limitation health wise, like if you're Drinking nine gallons a day. I'm gonna I don't know how that. many gallons. <laughs> I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> Check. All right. Well, there, you, there it is. It's a the pre discipline. everything, pre mission, pre workout, pre test taking, pre meeting, pre jujitsu. Now, you're gonna get mad or whatever, or you're gonna make you give me your attitude because sure. you know how you make fun of me because I wanted it to taste good. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You make fun of me. Yes. And and, I I, and and there's not even that much I can say about that because yes, it's, it's a legitimate thing it's true. Yeah. for for me, mm-hmm. big Jocko mm-hmm. to be like, oh, I want it to taste good. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a weakness, right? It's kind of <laughs> soft, right? Well, that being said, <laughs> we have another flavor coming. Right. I'm gonna tell you what. What, bro? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you two things. Well, first of all, it tastes good. Yeah, I know, bro. I Second know. of all, it's 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 basically pina colada. <laughs> but I can't yeah, call yeah. it that. That's like, it's I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. I can't do that. Yeah, so no. it's going to be called like coconut pineapple. Sure. You know, we're not going just straight pina, pina colada because I just can't. No, no. Just, it's not, that's not how. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not how. Uh, yeah, you did mention that. And yeah. I'm impressed that you're sticking with the delicious... Uh, it's luxurious it's tasting, really good you know dude, that, but that's one of those things like you like pina colada you like that flavor like I've heard of people not really liking it but that could have to do with the fact that you know how like when you drink alcohol too much and it has like a str- like tequila will have it pina colada is like that if you just drink too many of them you oh, get drunk yeah, you have yeah, a bad you experience sick, whatever, yeah. now you can never drink it again yeah, yeah, now yeah, if you smell true. it 
you feel off. You know, are you thinking of theory? tequila right now? Tequila yeah. is tequila like that like for sure. Jaeger, Jaeger. Yeah, I had a, yes, w- yes. during my younger years. I had like a fourteen month hiatus from Jaeger after I had a bad sitch. Yeah, bad sitch. Yeah, so pina colada. I was young like and that. stupid. You know what? Young, stupid, and motivated. Dang. Like you know when you're actually motivated, like oh, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. Sure. Dumb. Yeah, but Check. if you haven't had that experience with pina colada, I would assume that that's a that's a pretty high rate of acceptance as far as deliciousness goes, in my opinion, yeah. or in my it's by my weird. estimation, I think my hypothesis or whatever. Nonetheless, it's called discipline. It's pre-mission. This whether you love pina colada or love lemon lime ish flavor with other delicious factors in it that's a good thing but it's good because it makes your brain more healthy and your body pre-mission pre-workout pre-test taking pre-meeting pre-jujitsu pre-workout cognitive and physical force multiplier that's what that is so get on that one of course also geese and rash guards dave burke you, do you ghee, didn't talk right? about mulk yeah you missed the mulk yeah, I didn't really miss it. I was gonna save it for last, but no, no, no. Okay, I'll get I'll get back in my lane over here. No, because I side. just had a whole thing I was gonna do okay, with cool. it. Rash guards, tell me about it. I feel like we should do the mulk <laughs> now because you brought, kind of kind of brought it up, which is you know if for lack of a better term, it's actually it it is a better term. It's not protein powder. It's protein powder, but it's a better term for this particular protein powder, mulk. Yeah, yeah. Mint chocolate. Just in case you didn't know, Dave Burke. Dave Burke, you on the milk yet? He's not on the milk yet. He I just guess. told me he's going to get it this week. Well, I will say this. I never was into protein powder. Aside from, you know, when you're, you're still in not. high school. You're still not. I'm still You're t- in the milk. <laughs> <laughs> right. Correct. Correct. But this one is one of those good ones where kind of like you in the discipline where you're like pounding it all the time. So I give my daughter oh. dessert. Right? Oh, yeah. This is a dessert. Straight it's up. Straight up dessert. Straight up. Yeah. It and, tastes that good. And don't put a couple of drops of vanilla in there. Try to do that. Put two oh. drops of vanilla. Really? Put an egg and put it in the blender. Dang. I swear to you. In fact, you know what? Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll, you'll okay. be in the same boat as me. That's Nonetheless, weird. it's like a dessert and there's protein. No, it's good, man. Because I used to make these uh, milkshakes when I was young. Do you like think just it's, a homemade you think it's making you more swole? Probably. <laughs> Probably Jack. is. Big time. Nonetheless, I used to make these milkshakes when I was young. They, were, they had vanilla, egg, like a teeny tiny piece of banana, milk, <laughs> and some other stuff. Some sugar in there. And it was good. It was like a solid milkshake. Like yeah. a good, like yeah, almost yeah. like you bought it from a gourmet spot. No, the milk is no joke when it comes to milkshake simulator. Yeah. <laughs> mint, mint, chocolate. Your That's favorite, peanut butter's coming. Peanut butter, peanut chocolate, chocolate, peanut butter's coming. Chocolate, peanut butter, milk is on its way. Yeah. Straight up. Dave Burke, when you get on it, you're going to stay on that. So you're just going to be pounding discipline and milk like all day. The way the way Dave Burke, only Dave he's gonna Burke look can. Like an he echo, he's going to look like Echo Charles. Yeah. Swollen. Six months, dude. Lifting, jujitsu, milk, all that stuff. Also, geese and rash guards. We can talk about that if you want, unless you have another suggestion no, no, no. on what okay. else I should talk Ooh. about at this point. I'm I'm saying I want to do the right thing over here. You know what I'm saying, Dave Burke? What kind of gi you have, Dave Burke? You do gi, right? I do. I have two. So here's mm-hmm. the one good thing about starting jujitsu at 45. I discovered the one good thing about it instead mm-hmm. of starting at 15. 
is I never have any of those stories where I tell about how uncomfortable the gear is or how the <laughs> rash guards gave me, you know, or the, the, yeah, the yeah, geese yeah. are hard to wash. Mm-hmm. I got origin main geese time to. From the get-go. Two. From the get-go. Oh, yeah, this the is, like, this is like someone that never had a flip phone yep. in 1994. Yeah. Just woke up and they had an iPhone yep. 6. Started with the iPhone 10. Yeah. Out of the gears. You're just out of the gate. Yep. Yep. Origin main rash guards. Yep. So I don't know what it's like yeah. to have grown up with all the yeah, yeah. terrible gear you guys use. You didn't know what it was like, yeah, man. Back in the day. Yeah, well, that's that's actually good news in my in my opinion, you know, because working not working, but you know, like working out and, and doing jujitsu in a junk gi, probably the first gi I had. Man, you know, how you like you need like you ever when you buy your first suit, same deal. Like you don't know, I don't know. In my yeah. like, I don't it's know just how like the suit, that. You thought that was just yeah, out. like oh, I see a guy who's suit. Oh, let me go buy one. I don't know, yeah. whatever. So same thing. So I went and bought a gi, and it was like I bought a cheap one. You know, yeah, like, yeah, forty bucks. I well, well no straight. See. I bought my first gi was in a key. I bought from the Aikido store. Yeah. Because the jujitsu place, they were like, it's 100 bucks. I'm like, oh, cool, not happening. I'll go find a different one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I found find a cheaper one. Un, unbleached. Have you ever heard of this? Unbleached cotton. That okay. was even cheaper it's than like the bleached cotton. Wood. It's an off white. Yeah. It feels like it's filled with steel wool scratching at your yeah, skin. Yeah, 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 but that's hard. And it lasted like four weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, get a quality gi, get yourself Aikido an origin gi. gi. That was or an it was Aikido, Aikido gi. Okay. It was an Aikido gi. It looked, it felt similar yeah. from the external viewpoint to yeah. a jiu-jitsu gi, but it wasn't, and it damn sure wasn't made in America. <laughs> no, made in Maine. You know what's awesome is to yeah. know, to literally know mm-hmm. the people, because I, I, we've been to the factory. Mm-hmm. I know the people that that made those. I know them. Yeah. I like. I say, oh hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm over here making a gi. Yeah, like, yeah. That's real. That's yeah. what's happening. Yeah. And on top of that, not to mention, the cotton that was loomed right there in the building, by yeah, the way, yeah. is from America too. That's something. And you. So I was talking about Pete about this. The cotton, it's not all cotton. It's it's um, what is it? Polyester. Poly. It's poly. So it's a poly cotton blend. And I thought that the two strands were different. And it's woven together. No, mm. the they make that that actual thread mm. is co- cotton, po- poly cotton. The thread, the thread oh, itself gotcha. that you weave is. Oh. That's why that's why you can put it in the dryer to dry like a normal piece of clothing. Not four hours, you right, pull right. it out and you still have to hang it up because it's all cotton and it just yeah. holds onto the water. No, cotton. gets out of there. Yeah, made in America. Yeah. All good. So yeah, you um, good, good. Dave Burke, boom, origin ghee. No history of discomfort in other geese. No, no uh, stinky area of the house where wet geese are hanging up for four days. Yep. Yeah. Now, and I'll say this for all the stuff at Origin: everything they make is awesome. On their website, they talk about the uh, the hoodie, and they call it the most comfortable hoodie ever. Yeah. I grew is. up hundred percent wearing hoodies. If you grew up in Southern California, when it gets really cold out, you put on a hoodie. Yeah. The Origin hoodie <laughs> is the most comfortable hoodie I've ever owned. So that stuff is legit. No joke. No. No personal offense to you, Dave, because I respect you. <laughs> I do. I, I really respect you as a person. But your level of measuring comfort is not even close to Echo. <laughs> no. Echo is sort of the quality comfort control guy. No. And he has already made this statement. So you saying it is like everyone is listening on whatever. We don't yeah. Yeah. you're in the Marine Corps, you know, you've Doesn't done some know you've, you you know, you've done some yeah. tough stuff in your life. They're looking at Echo, they're like, wait, if Echo thinks it's comfortable, <laughs> we're in. Yeah. That that actual statement has meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I will. But I will say, you know, sure. Like, of course, Dave Burke, of course, we all knew that. You know, I've, yeah, 
I am the gold standard of comfort evaluation <laughs> for sure, I think. And I will second that. It is the hoodie and the pants, by the way. So, yeah. Get those as well. All made in America. The compression gear and rash guards. All the, the, I'm just saying there's all this stuff on the website. OriginMain.com. You can get all this stuff. The hoodie. The geese. The rash guards. Sweatpants. Other stuff. A lot of cool stuff on there. Check it out. If you want something, get something. Also, the immersion camp. Jiu-jitsu camp. Boom. Just got a message from someone from Florida, young lady from Florida, saying, get it. saying I want to go to the immersion camp, but I won't know anyone there. And you know I Echo think Charles. I'm the only one from Florida. What do you think? Hey, you know me kind of, I guess, if you're sending me the message, sure. Yeah. You know me. Probably know Jocko, too. Well, if you know Echo, you know me, and that means you know Dave Burke. You know, mm-hmm. three of us. Three, three we'll people already. Rolling. And here's the good thing where when you go there, we technically, sure, knew each other. And you knew Pete. That was the first time I met Pete. I met probably, what, like the first 15 minutes we met about 20 people. Yeah. And we hung out with those 20 people plus the other people you meet over the days the whole time. It yeah. wasn't the kind of like, oh, I don't really know them, man. I'm hanging over here and there over there. It wasn't. It's not like that. You ever heard of those like dating sites? Where you, <laughs> no, seriously. You put what, in. Like, like match.com Well, you look at. It, okay, so I grew up before dating sites. Or I got married before dating sites. So I was just like, do the game back in the day. Like, you got to go to a place where you can hopefully meet a girl, right? Yeah. The odds of meeting a girl are not. The girl that you like and that has some sort of remotely similar interest, you go into a bar with a hundred girls in there, and like you're lucky if there's one of them there that's remotely interested in what you're interested in, and you can connect. Then you got to meet them. Then you got to go up and talk to them. And all this stuff. It's real hard. Mm. Then they made the the match dating things online where sure. you put in your stuff, yeah, and then you meet that one person and and you connect with them and you have the, all these things in common. This situation, you think about it, you're actually just going into a place where everyone's into the same thing that you're into. It's yeah. like walking to a bar and everyone likes the same stuff. Right, everyone right. there likes jujitsu mm-hmm. and wants to train and wants to hang out, and that's it's, that's what makes it cool. Yeah, yeah, no, no dating typically, but hey, yeah, the, you, that's a good point. Everyone kind of you kind of converge on the the topic of jujitsu and then yeah. kind of everything else spawns from there yeah. that's what it really seemed like yeah. to me too and then everything spins back to jujitsu yeah yeah it's good fun so my input is to go that's what i think i think go when in doubt go dave's and going i'm going yeah. D- leif is going good. confirmed jp's considering i'll go uh he'll probably end up going mm-hmm. yeah so we'll be it'll be a little ef reunion tour yeah. Of the Jiu-Jitsu boy. Yep. Agree. And when you, hang out. you go there knowing zero people, you'll leave there not only knowing more people, but they'll be kind of your friends. I will guarantee you'll have more actual friends after you leave. Guaranteed. This is to, to the lady that emailed me. That's what I think. Right on, man. That's anyway. cool. And even if you will know some people there, I say go too because you can immerse yourself in Jiu-Jitsu. Best way to learn. And, you know, let's face it. You're in Maine. There's a bunch of lobster. They serve lobster. Yeah. That was one of the highlights, in my opinion. Anyway, yeah. So it is on August 26th through September 2nd. Two sessions. Go to both if you want. But yeah, two sessions. There you go. All levels. Also, for fitness gear, go to onit.com slash Jocko. They got kettlebells, battle ropes, jump ropes, all kinds of stuff. Good stuff. Vary up your workout. Get some new gear. 
it'll actually get you more in the mood to do a workout when you when that gear comes in. I guarantee that. Well, I, I don't know if I can guarantee that, but that, that's how it was for me when I got the jump rope. Then all of a sudden, I'm a jump roper. You see what I'm saying? It's good. Anyway, a lot of cool stuff on there. A lot of good information on there, too, by the way. If you're beginning like kettlebells or you're beginning other workout movements and you want to know some tips and, you know, even some nutrition stuff. Really good. Anyway, go there. Onnit.com slash Jocko. Good way to support. Also, when you get the books that Jocko reviews on this podcast, I organize them on JockoPodcast.com on the top. You click on books from episodes and it takes you to the page. And it has, that's right, you guessed it, the books by the epi- for, for on the episodes, by episodes. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, click on there. It takes you to Amazon. You can shop, get your books, get whatever else you want from Amazon, your batteries or duct tape, whatever. Keep shopping. Do you. Also, good way to support is to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play. Spotify? Do you subscribe on Spotify or is it just there? I don't know. I've been to Spotify. There's a lot more apps for podcasts now. Yeah. I I think I'm going to explore some of them too. Daily. Yeah. I'm going to explore some of them. Comes out daily. Um, Yeah. yeah. Well, either way, the point there is Apple changed their thing. What do you mean? Their their layout or something. So now it pops up different. Everything's different now. (laughs) Frustrating. I know, bro. It's like. You ever realize when when you, the layout of some so this was a big thing on Facebook. When do you get on Facebook, Dave Burke? Do you remember? Two thousand fourteen. Fourteen. Dang, that's 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 pretty it was early. A requirement I guess. for school. Okay, there you go. So were you in on Facebook when they kind of changed the layout of Facebook from something to something to like newsfeed? Negative. Jocko, oh, Jocko doesn't know anything about this. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about at all, huh? No, I didn't. I didn't get on Facebook till probably like two thousand. I was might have been on, but I didn't actively do anything on it till like maybe a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe fa- a year and a half. <clears throat> so the layout of Facebook Something was like, like you know you had your profile picture, and I'm even I'm just trying to remember what it was. It was like I don't even remember what it was, but it was like. I think like your wall or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's like you're just your your own stuff, and then they all of a sudden switched it to this newsfeed situation. You know how like now it's like everyone's stuff that you're basically how it is now. They just switched it, and people were mad. It was like it like changed their life. You know they were pissed. That's what you sounded like yeah, when you just talked about what, the apples. That's, what that's you know you had that same effect on your brain. Anyway. Subscribe to the podcast is what I'm saying. Regardless of the layout of any iTunes or any other applications that the layout has or has not changed, good way to support. Also, we have a YouTube channel, so subscribe to that if you want. And if you're interested in the video version of this podcast, if you want to see what Jocko looks like. Or Dave Burke, in this case, what he looks like. Pretty handsome, I think, as far as handsome ghosts. Or Colonel Tom Five. Yes. See what he looks like. Yeah, typically those are the the ones that people want to see. You know, yeah. they want to see the guests. They want to see what uh, sure. what they look like. They know what we look like. Yeah, they kind of already know. Except me, I guess they don't really know what I look like because I still do get. Hey, you don't look like how you sound. Right. Which is an mm-hmm. actual thing. You can look like how you sound. Like you look like how you sound. Check. Saying <laughs> Dave Burke looks how he sounds. But it's not a one-to-one. It's not a face to like your voice sounds like this, so your face is gonna look like it's not like that. It's like your your voice sounds like this. So your face can look like this kind of real, like this group, this little variety of face, possible faces. You see what I'm saying? That's how it works. Yeah. But for you, your voice does I'm not I'm outside of that yet. group. My face is outside of that group, apparently. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, 
YouTube. Boom. Also, we have excerpts on there if you want. You know, some of the lessons that Jocko talks about, you know, you want to share them. They're, they're, they're condensed. Or actually, they're not condensed. They're just taken out and, you know, made little videos on there. Um, also, enhance excerpts. Put some music on there. Make them more. Somebody asked for tracks. Enhanced excerpt tracks into Psychological Warfare available on iTunes. So, mm, that does that make sense? Yeah. So enhanced. In the enhanced I think it's time for Warfare Psychological track. Warfare 2, by the way. Just yeah, FYI. I, I agree. I've been getting a lot of requests for things like that. I agree, but not from a personal interest standpoint, because the Psychological Warfare 1 is still very effective, 100% effective for me right Album now. with tracks. Currently. Yeah, track. which I will talk about after I talk about the fact that Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko's Store, jockostore.com. This is where you can get the t-shirts that say Discipline Equals Freedom, like the one I'm wearing right now, or the Jocko Podcast shirt, basic, but very nice, the one that Dave Burke is wearing right now. Also, you just, were you telling me you got called out with a Jocko Podcast t-shirt? Where was that? I'm wearing this exact shirt. I'm at Disney World with the family down in Orlando two weeks ago from uh, mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the way. I get a... Good evening, Echo. <laughs> that's the standard <laughs> yeah. bona fides. Legit, man. <laughs> yep. The standard, standard bona fides yep. is good evening, Echo. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah, looks good on you, of course. Um, and even if you want the one that Jocko has on now, the one that Jocko always has on right now, the one he has on right now and always has on. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, if you want that that shirt, go on JockoStore.com. Or if you want a hoodie, or if you want a hat, or if you want a rash guard. Anyway, just go on there. You can see, you know, if you want to support that way. There's a lot of cool stuff on there if you want something. Get something. It's called JockoStore.com. Also, just like Jocko mentioned, Psychological Warfare is an album with tracks. Basically, these tracks are each track. You can get these on iTunes, by the way. So each track is Jocko telling you how to get past certain weaknesses that you might have, might have on your campaign against weakness. So, you know, you're on the path, right? We're working out. We're waking up early, some of us. And... You know, we're reading more, whatever we're doing. Sometimes you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that every day. You just don't feel like it on some days, but you still should do it. We all know that. But sometimes you don't feel like it, so you're about to skip the workout. Boom, you listen to a certain track. Doc will tell you why you shouldn't skip the workout, and it's effective. You won't skip the workout. Take it from me. I know 100% from experience. That's what it is. Get it on iTunes. Check. You know, also, speaking of subscribing, mm-hmm. I have a, another podcast now. Yeah, it's called the Warrior Kid Podcast. Good one, by the way. Yeah. Uncle Jake has lessons. The the name of the podcast is Warrior Kid. Ask Uncle Jake. Mm -hmm. Uncle Jake answers questions from little warrior kids around the world. And you can get that. Play it for your kids. There's no foul language. There's no talk about the My Lai Massacre. It's totally separate so your kids won't get stumble upon something that they shouldn't be listening to that they're not ready for yet. So you can check that out. Also, Jocko White Tea is available on Amazon. And if you're going to order it, well, then go ahead and just go ahead and order some more weights for your barbell, too, because you're going to need them. You need about 8,000 pounds worth, and that's the minimum guaranteed deadlift. Also, there's cans of white tea coming soon. They're going to be here in June. They're going to be available on Amazon in June. Victory in a can. Yes, certified organic. Never thought you'd hear me say that now, <laughs> did you? Yeah. yeah, certified organic. There you go. We're going to get rid of all the horrible energy drinks that are out there making people sick. Mm-hmm. And we're going to place it with Jock, Jocko White Tea, which is 8,000 pounds of pure power. Let me ask you this yes. about Jocko White Tea. Would you consider 
making the microdose or a version that doesn't have just a microdose of caffeine. But uh, if you drink the f- no, probably not. No more caffeine. No, the the Jocko White tea can, I think, is two servings, and I think it's thirty grams. Totally. I'll confirm that. Yeah, I shouldn't have said it. I'm but saying, I'll would you ever consider making like another another version? In the future or anything like that, what? something with more Jocko caffeine. Jocko White tea hype or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, more. Sure. Uh, pr- I, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, I don't Got think it. so. Because um, if you want more, you can drink more. Yeah, man. Yeah, or go get some. You know, something that's gonna make you all jittery. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. I dig it. Uh, books: Way of the Warrior Kid series. It's a series of books, by the way. There's two of them right now. There'll be more. I got a. I got a, a note on social media and it was from an eight-year-old warrior kid named Addison and she wrote this dear mr. Willink I absolutely love your book way of the warrior kid I think it's the best book ever you know what I'm saying Uh, it taught me about discipline and commitment now every day I train before school and trust me it helps a lot your friend Addison so there you go listen to Addison Pick up The Way of the Warrior Kid and pick up Mark's Mission, the second book, so your kids can get stronger, smarter, faster, and overall better. And if you want to support a particular warrior kid that's on the move, making things happen, go to irishoaksranch.com. Get some soap made by Aiden, warrior kid. Warrior kid with his own business. He makes Jocko soap on his farm so you can stay clean. Don't forget about the discipline equals freedom field manual. I met a trooper up in Yosemite. I was up in Yosemite. This was, I guess it was last summer. And, you know, we just started talking. Mm. And I'm like, oh, so what you doing up here? And he was like, I'm up here to get my mind right. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I got kind of fired up, sure. you know, get yeah. my mind right. Yeah. And that's a thing. That's a thing that you, that you kind of got to do sometimes to get your mind right. Mm-hmm. Discipline equals freedom field manual. It'll help get your mind right. It'll help get your mind right. Yeah. And it'll help get your body right too, by the way, if you get some of those deaf core workouts going for sure. Uh, if you want to listen to it instead of read it or in addition to reading it, you got to get the audio version. Not audible books. It's not on there. It's available on Amazon Music, iTunes, Google Play, other MP3 platforms discipline equals freedom field manual meditate on that also for leadership extreme ownership combat leadership for the battlefield for business and life and now you can order the follow-on book to extreme ownership it's called the dichotomy of leadership it's available for pre-order on amazon barnes and noble local bookstore hit them up it'll be out september 25th if you want to get one of those first editions if you're a if you're a book person that's into the books you like to have that first edition order it if you need backup with your team from a leadership perspective whatever business you're in or whatever leadership situation you're in you need some support you can contact my leadership and management consulting company it's called echelon front it's me Leif Babin JP Dinell Dave Burke is in the game the website is echelonfront.com we solve problems through leadership that's it. Mm-hmm. That's how problems get solved in any organization. Not some whiz kid 
looking at a, a, a spreadsheet. Sure, we'll assess those. That's not where the problem's gonna get solved though. We might identify a problem there. The problem is leadership. The problem in your organization is leadership. We'll fix it. That's what we do. Of course, we got the muster. We're in DC right now for the muster. Uh, it sold out and they all sell out. There's one more muster in 2018. Muster 006 in San Francisco, October 17th and 18th. You registered extremeownership.com. Like I said, it is going to sell out. If you want to come, register now. Also for current military law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, other first responders. We got the roll call 001, September 21st in Dallas, Texas. It's a one-day one day leadership training seminar that's specific to dynamic and hostile environments. Things like fires, things like combat, things like high-speed pursuit chases. That's what it's about. You can register for that as well at extremeownership.com. And until we see you at the muster or at the roll call or at the immersion camp in Maine, if you want to communicate with us and hang out virtually, you can find us on the interwebs. What's yours, Dave? David R. Burke. At Dave R. Burke. Dave R. Burke. Is your, the R on there. is your Twitter handle. Yep. Your Twitter call sign. That's it. I might have snagged Good Deal Dave. Oh, just to make sure nobody else has yeah, it. I might yeah. have grabbed that. Yeah, say. Nicely done. <laughs> Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And to all the military personnel out there, standing the global watch for evil. Thank you, and to the families of those men and women that are also serving and also sacrificing, thank you for what you do. To the first responders out there, police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, thanks for standing by to get some at all times. And also thanks to your families as well. And to everyone else that's out there with us, Facing whatever you're facing life challenges struggles pain suffering uncertainty look at the past Look at a guy like Tom Fife look what he's been through see what men and women have gone through what they've been subjected to and how over and over and over again we see human beings that rise against and they overcome to keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep fighting to move forward, and keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Dave and Echo and Jocko. Out.